Hey, I'm McCoy here, and you are listening to the Solar Panel. Oh, you won't beat the hell with car. Oh, it's like bling blow, ayy. Yeah, you can't hold me down. Yeah, how you let me know? You won't beat the hell with car. Oh, it's like bling blow, ayy. Gonna, 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 yeah, gonna. Hello and welcome everybody into a special edition of the Sun Solar Panel, just the podcast, just the audio edition this time. I felt it was very important to do something to specifically honor the legend that the Suns lost over the last week, Paul Westfall. Not only was he an unbelievable player on the court for the Suns, he was one of the coaches that you think of when you think of Phoenix alongside Cotton Fitzsimmons and Mike D'Antoni. So, you know, every Everybody, they say everybody has a Paul Westfall story, and and I really believe that because, and I shared mine last episode on the solar panel, just talking about my experiences with Paul, but it, just the way he was as a human being, I truly believe that everybody does have a, a Paul Westfall story. And one of the people that I knew would have multiple of them is a man that I like to look at as kind of the historian of a lot of things when it comes to to Arizona sports and one of my favorite to talk to, whether it's on this podcast or any chance I get to, uh, admittedly, it is Todd Walsh from Fox Sports Arizona and his own podcast, Todd's Garage. Todd, how are you today? I'm really good. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. And I am deeply honored to be included in this regarding Paul. This means a lot to me and I'm really, really happy to be able to share with you. So thanks for asking. Well, of course. Yeah. Well, you, as I said, uh, when I thought about somebody to talk about Paul Westfall, his impact in town, and just uh, some fun experiences with him as well, you were one of the first people uh, that came to mind. I know that uh, you have had the opportunity, and I think we've joked before, you're kind of the Forrest Gump of, uh, of Arizona sports. And I thought, you know what, if somebody's going to have great stories about oh, Paul Westfall, it's going to be you, Todd. So, oh, okay. <laughs> well, let's let's set the stage a little bit. You got the opportunity uh, to know Paul at first as the producer of the Six Twenty Sports Line, correct? Over at, at KTR back in in the day. Yeah, I, I got there in '88, and then I started reporting on that show, and then would uh, uh, take a few whacks at hosting it, and uh, that included Suns Talk, the pre and post game shows with Greg Schulte and obviously Jude LaCava and, you know, getting there in 1988, that's the dawn of the, you know, the Tom Chambers uh, midnight phone call. And I think you and I talked about this before on some podcast, I can't remember which one, but being a part of the ascension of the, of the Suns up until that uh, run into the 93 finals, there was nothing like it in this town. Then it reminded me, um, I had just left Tucson and covering the 1988 Arizona Wildcat basketball team that was a lot like that 93 Suns team in terms of not just what they did on the court, but what they did to the community and galvanizing and 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 letting people jump on and go along for the ride. So I, I literally had I had a, a backstage pass front court seat to watching that thanks to my job at KTAR. So, so you bring up uh, you bring up 
Chambers signing with the Suns. And I don't know if you caught the Suns live post game show the other night on Fox Sports Arizona the uh, the day that uh, that Paul passed. But Tom Chambers actually said as part of that that without Paul Westfall he wouldn't have signed with the Suns. That Paul wow. reached out to him and and he was. Uh, basically a major reason why he signed with the team. And I'd never, I had never heard that, but it was pretty no. interesting to hear that here. Uh, Tom admit that as the, the first unrestricted free agent in the NBA, Paul Westfall was what swayed him to Phoenix. And right there, I'd never heard that story before either. And just consider how that changes everything. Yep. If that doesn't happen, it just changes the entire paradigm moving forward. If, if Tom doesn't make that decision based on the phone call and now realizing that Paul was a part of it, it simply does not surprise me. He has touched so many generations of basketball, sons basketball, even college basketball in the state of Arizona. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's like the rock of Gibraltar for it. He's, he's the epicenter of it, isn't he? It's not, well, it's a great story. I love it. Well, yeah, I mean, you think about it. This this town became a Suns town in large part because of Paul Westfall and that 75-76 team. Without those Cinderella Suns, I don't know that the Valley Falls is in love uh, with this team as they do. And, yeah, of course, they're the first professional sports team in the Valley. They're, in some ways, they're the only game in town. Uh, and, you know, ASU shares, shares the stage with them, but they're the only professional team a big league team that that this town has and Paul Westfall plays a huge part of putting them on the map with with fans in this valley uh, that whole run uh is is what i credit with this still being a sun's down uh mm -hmm. because you have a, that that first generation of fans that still still are in love with them uh, my generation which is in that 88 through mm -hmm. uh, through that 93 run and then that seven seconds or less generation but without paul in those first two and those finals runs i don't think we we may never actually get to a seven seconds or less or what we saw in you know that we're seeing develop now because that 76 team establishes things that eight, mm -hmm. that 88 run with the cotton express and everything uh, reignites a, a, the love affair after what mm -hmm. were some immensely difficult times in the mid to late, late eighties. And then uh, Paul Westfall oversees the, the coaching of, of that 93 finals team, which uh, to this day, I don't think we've ever seen a city more passionate about a second place team in sports than that. No, and I think what you're talking about too, and this is a, it doesn't get discussed much because it's just not part of the everyday conversation, but you're talking about connecting now generations. And I found that out um, in the late 80s and early, it must have been early 90s when we did a feature, and I know we'll get to it on, and it started with one night open phones or I don't know what we were doing, but it, we were we were just asking, where were you when? Mm -hmm. And we we formed the question, you know, where were you during the triple overtime game with the Celtics? And the phones blew up. And these were older, an older generation of fans that we were normally talking to. So now you're connecting, you know, by the time you're talking about the 92, 93 sons, you're talking about, you know, kids that grew up with their dads that were, I mean, you could, you could go on and on. And that's the beauty of it. And that's what you want when you're, when you're trying to put a franchise together. You want to connect generations, right? 
and that's and that's the coolest part about Paul. I'm going to say the word cool probably ten thousand <laughs> times because he, to me he epitomized being cool. He was just cool, yeah. but he was the only direct connection I think on the court from that triple overtime game against Boston to the triple overtime game at the United Center in Chicago. It was Paul Westfall. So he connects generations of of, of Suns fans, and that's why the story is so fun to 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 dive into. I remember like. I'd only been in the state seven years or so when we asked that question and people were giving us recall on where they were that night. I mean, and they were listening to Al because it, I believe it must've been a tape delay or whatever, but they were listening to Al McCoy and everybody had a place in the Valley that they were at. And, you know, I could do that. It was like the oldest trick in the book where were you when we could do that with Luis Gonzalez's hit and on and on. But I just remember feeling that night. Wow. I got a lesson from Suns fans you know, I was a bit of a carpetbagger at that point. Hadn't been here that long, and I realized, okay, this is uh, this is magic. It's still magic, and that was that was a really fun thing to do to be able to to mine that again. Yeah, it, it, it's unbelievable when when you look at it, and you bring up a a good point in that general generational connection. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's. Al McCoy is number one because he's been that soundtrack and so many of us have, uh, have fallen in love with the team in part because of, of his play call. Uh, then I think it's, it's probably Jerry is, is there mm-hmm. as well as that, as a generational connector. And then it's Paul Westfall. It's those mm-hmm. three that I think are really the triumvirate of what set up the the foundation uh, of Suns fanhood and why even after lean times for a decade, it's still a town that when the Suns are good, there there will be nothing like it. I yeah. think in part to those three guys and and you bring up that that open phone lines where you're talking to these people and they bring up seventy six and and I know you did a segment that kind of spun off of that where reimagining what if in that, in that triple overtime game in, uh, in Boston, what if it had gone to a fourth overtime? And I found this fascinating. I, I admittedly do not remember this from, from when you originally did it. It must've been one of the few episodes of the 620 sports line. I, I have forgotten. Over You're forgiven. You're forgiven. <laughs> but it, it was fascinating to me because uh, you you did this whole what if you get Al McCoy to to go back and and basically call what the end of uh, a, a, the third overtime could have been and the the role Paul Westfall would have played. Can you kind of explain yeah. exactly what went on there? First of all, I'm thrilled to be able to recreate this. This is um, this is one of my all time favorite moments in broadcasting, and, and that's over 37 years. I don't even know how many years now. 30 something years. Um, we called it the time machine, um, and we did theme shows on the 620 Sports Line from time to time. And sometimes those themes, and, it, and you know, it, it took a little bit of courage and determination to put them together because you had to be committed to it. Because we had a four-hour show, we were the only game in town. Right, talk radio, sports talk radio was very, very new and different in that regard. So to be able to push the limit for three hours or two hours, you had to be committed to it, and. Um, Back to the Future, I'm not sure which movie was out or near uh, near that time, but um, I stumbled upon this goofy sound effect of, that sounded like a time machine, and it got me to thinking and got Jude and I talking about 
um, the triple overtime game against the Boston Celtics. And this is a summertime. There's no Diamondbacks. There's no internet. You're not connected to baseball. So it was a challenge from time to time to put a show on the middle of July or whatever. But we always had the Suns. And if Cotton Fitzsimmons didn't call in just out of the blue or Jerry Colangelo didn't leak a little story about, hey, we might get Patrick Ewing, and it seemed like that came up every summer, if we just played the Suns card, we had people. But we decided that we were going to recreate the ending of the triple overtime game and put it into what we call the time machine. And that was the end of the show. But we did two or three hours on that game. And I, and I suppose you, I know you'll appreciate this. I thought I had the greatest job in the world. This is long before the internet, therefore YouTube. But somehow I got a copy of the game and I had to go rent a, a video player. Um, and I sat down at my house and I watched the game and I had a, uh, a Morant's tape deck plugged into my TV and I was just pulling clips of Mindy Rudolph and Rick Barry and then the CBS broadcasters. And, um, and, and the show started to formulate in my head. We were just going to tell the story of the game with, you know, seminal moments of the game and with live guests. So we had Tommy Heinsohn, Dave Cowens, I think John Havlicek, Richie Powers, the referee who had an unbelievable revelation about a technical foul that he didn't call, Jerry Colangelo, Jojo White, Dick Van Arsdale, and Paul Westfall. Long story short, at the very end, we decided to recreate the end of that game, but we didn't feel like it was respectful to the Celtics to have the Sun uh, to have the Suns win that game. So we had it tied and going into the fourth overtime. And we built that up for three or four hours. But the best part and the part that you'll hear is um, I went to the Suns offices on, I think on Central near Park Central Mall back then. And I, I, I went to Dick Van Arsdale, Paul Westfall and Al McCoy. And I told them what we were doing. And they looked at me like I had rocks in my head, but they played along. The best part about the story that, and the thing that I love telling about this, and I get chills when I tell it, we decided that Dick Van Arsdale, the original son, had to make the shot, right? Just, and when I went to Van, he was very humble about it. He didn't want to make the shot, right? And I said, well, it has to be you. But then he said to me, but Paul Westfall has to be a part of the play. He would have made the play that got me the ball. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay. So what's the shot? He goes, okay. And then he said the play. This is all in his head. And then I went to Paul and I told him and he looked at me like I had rocks in my head. And I said, but it, but Van said you had to make the play and here's the play that he talked about. And then I was watching like the light bulbs going on over their heads. Oh yeah. I see what would have happened. Then I went to the hall of famer, Al McCoy. And I think I got him to come to the studio. We were right across the street at third and Osborne. And uh, I told him about the play. As God is my witness, Al McCoy didn't write anything down about the play. Nothing. He just scribbled a couple of things. He had the lineup in his head of who, who would be on the floor for the Celtics, who was on the floor for the Suns. And then Al, based on what Van said and Paul reacted to, called the play. So you have a piece of broadcasting gold, in my opinion. It's the Suns tying that game and going off into the fourth amazing overtime in Boston at the Garden thanks to the 620 Sports Line time machine. One second remaining in the second overtime. Here's Perry. Cigar Hurd. Here's the jump shot. Good! It's good! It counts! Cigar Hurd ties it! We'll go to the third overtime! I 
got to take a breather. Garfield Hurd made the basket. I want to tell you something. Somebody up there is on our side. My momentum was carrying me out of bounds. There was no way I could have caught the ball and stayed in bounds because the pass was straight down the sideline. I would have had to tip the ball back to uh, somebody like Curtis Perry, and he would have had to had to throw a pass up to Van Arsdale, and he would have had to bank in about a 15-footer to tie it and go into four overtimes, and then I think we would have worn him down in the fourth. Well, in the uh, third overtime, when uh, you know, it looked like it was all over for us, Boston took the ball in bounds and threw a pass that Paul Westfall deflected, and uh, Curtis Perry wound up with it, threw a long pass to me about 15 feet on the left side, and I banked a shot in. I didn't get many shots that day, but that one went in. Nelly made a great attempt to try to block the shot. He wasn't quite uh, good enough to get there, so I made the shot and put it into overtime, went into the fourth overtime. Come down to the wire for the Suns, and they'll go with Van Arsdale, Perry, Garherd, Westfall, and Sobers. And the Celtics will play the final 12 seconds with the McDonald, Don Nelson, R, Jojo White, and Havlicek. 12 seconds to go in the third amazing overtime here at Boston Gardens. And the Celtics hanging on by their teeth to a 128-126 lead. All right, Celtics have the basketball. Sunset defensively. It'll be inbounding the ball. Hondo, he drops it into McDonald. Glenn McDonald back to Havlicek. Over to Nelson. Here's a long pass down the left side. It's tipped by Westfall. Westfall comes up with the ball. Up on the side. It goes to Perry. Seat feet of aim. He's got a 15-footer. Can he hit it? He scores! Van Arsdale from the angle left. Cans the 15-footer as the buzzer ends the ball game in the third overtime. This one is tied. I don't believe it. I do not believe it. We're going to go to the fourth overtime as Van Kane and does. It's a 15-footer. He was going against Nelson. He fired it off the glass and it went. And this one is tied again. Oh, brother. I actually, I loved this. I, as I said, I had never heard it, you know, but to hear Al recreate that here, Paul talk about what, what it would have been like and, and, and how we would have made that play. All of it is just, it's amazing. And it, and it shows you the basketball mind that Paul Westfall had just, just to be able him and, and Dick Van Arsdale, as you're saying that just the minds that they had for the game. And it shows you just how much they understood the game and how they could think back at that point. What was that? 12, 13 years yeah. after the fact uh, and tell you with, with amazing recall how that could have played out. And the fact that Van was able to give Don Nelson a little jab that he turned the ball over, but also that Van had the respect and the reverence for Paul. I mean, it was, it was very obvious. And I mean, everybody likes to, you know, rib your pal and guy that you went to war with, you know, and, and over the course of an 82 game season or whatever it was back then. But I remember walking out of there and going back to KTAR and just looking at you like, you're not going to believe this. You're just not going to believe this. So I, that's still, I, I have the full show. Someday I'll send it to you so you can hear um, what Richie Powers said and what Jerry Colangelo heard on a golf course. You probably heard the story about 
what probably should have happened in the course of that game and how it changed potentially changed the history of the franchise. But um, I, again, I'll go right back to it. It blew my mind that in 91 or 92, I could mention that game or we could go on the air, Jude could, and it was instant. The phone, there's nothing better. You know, everybody thinks you do a sports talk show and you just sit down and there's going to be calls. And that's always my favorite thing when someone says, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit in and do a talk show when you're on vacation. And then they call an hour into the show and their blood pressure's through the roof and they're covered in sweat. And they're asking me, where are the calls? Well, you have to earn them. Yeah. And the Suns, Celtics, triple overtime game was a smash hit even then. Bam. Generationally. And, and I, I will never forget while I was with the team, Al McCoy calls me into his office because he knows how big of a, a nerd I am about history. <laughs> and he pulls out, that's the only way to say it. I, I'm a son's nerd. Unfortunately. unfortunately. And he goes, he goes, you'll never believe what I just found, Greg. And, uh, and he pulls it out and it was his scorecard of that triple overtime game that he had actually kept, you know, kept his score, kept his notes from, from things. And he goes, I, I haven't seen this in, in probably oh. a decade. And he showed me it. And I was like, it was just unbelievable to see that history right there. You know? Oh, wow. And did you take it from him? Did you know? Uh, no. <laughs> I did not. Okay, I should well, have. I'm uh, on it. His story of the inebriated Celtic fan that kept falling into his lap is just, it's just the stuff of legend that night. Well, so you look at, at what Paul Westfall, I mean, in that, in that triple overtime game, he's heady enough to say we need to call a timeout despite not having any so we can advance the ball even though it'll get us a technical foul, right? That All that oh. leads to Gar Hurd hitting one of the most famous shots in Suns history and in league history yep. in that. And it all was because Paul Westfall knew the game so well. That's Smart. crazy. Smartest guy in the room, and it was okay that you could say that, and I don't care if there was a, a sense about him because he was – and, I, and I, when you think of that play, I've heard Jerry Colangelo describe it, that, you know, that to have the sense of that in that moment, in that time when time doesn't stand still, but it stood still in his mind to be able to do that and know and have the recall of the rule and allowing that to happen. Again, you, you know, you remove Paul from an equation again and Gar Hurd's shot never happened. That moment just disappears. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating when you think about it. Yeah, well, and I think that's one of the moments that probably people look back at and go, well, we knew he was going to be a head coach. You know, we knew he was going yeah. to coach this game yeah. because of his understanding. And we we fast forward, you, you go from 76 to 88, Cotton's head coach, but he brings in Paul Westfall as an assistant on those teams. And he has an impact through that entire Cotton Express run. And then time comes, uh, you know, for the Suns to to pass the baton from Cotton and Paul becomes the the logical choice in '92 to take over that team. Uh, you were covering uh, covering the team then. Do you remember kind of what the re- the reception to hometown guy in terms of having played for the team, Paul Westfall, getting a chance to be the head coach? It's sort of a constellation of a perfect storm of the right things. Charles Barkley has arrived. The arena is built. It's open. And here comes Paul Westfall. And Cotton has brought that team all the way to that point. And then you've got 
an infusion of youth and a guy that thinks a little differently and is probably going to read the room a little better. I don't know if Cotton would have been that far off, but I think he understood the personality of the players of that era um, and clearly understood that Charles Barkley was the biggest star in the, in the sky. And I, I, I remember we, we had many, many conversations and many shows about how is this going to work? You know, that was Kevin Johnson's room. That was Tom Chambers' room. That was Dan Marley's room. Jeff Hornacek was gone. You guys know all this. But I just remember being there thinking, how is this going to work? But, it, you know, they were immediately the talk of the town, the biggest story in town, the brand-new, shiny America West Arena. Downtown was a place to go because you could either go to the arena or Dan Marley's or the Wigorama. That was about it. But it suddenly was a destination. And um, I just thought he was – the right guy at the right time for the organization. And, and, and then we just kind of watched it take off and, it, and there was kind of a, an offensive freedom to it. I mean, Jude is such a tactician and knows basketball so much better than I ever did or ever will, but we would always kind of, you know, you'd sit there and you get a little, your mind gets numb after time watching game after game after game. But it was, we, I talked to Jude today, in fact, about um, Paul's ability just to draw up plays <laughs> You know, coming out of a timeout was always just like, wait a minute, you know, it was must-see TV for those moments. So I, I just saw him as the right guy at the right time in their history, and they were that close. I One of my favorite moments from that, that season was a game in Portland uh -huh. where they're, they're down late. There's like, there's literally 0.4 seconds on the <laughs> clock. And when I, when I say literally, I'm using that term the correct way, not yes. the way so many people use it. Now there were only 0.4 seconds left on the clock. They're down one at that point and they go to the huddle and there's this great piece that sons.com put out uh, a couple of years ago for the 50th anniversary. And they're talking about, uh, about this play and Westfall draws it up. And basically Oliver Miller is supposed to throw it in, throw it off the backboard. Off the backboard yes. So Sned Sabalos is supposed to act like he's going for it, but mm -hmm. not touch it. And Barkley's supposed to catch it and put it in. Well, the, the players go, well, the game's going to be over if it hits the backboard and Westfall goes, no, the rule is it's not, the clock doesn't start till somebody touches it. Right. Yep, yep. So, so play goes off. Oliver Miller throws it. Perfect. Said does the fake Charles catches it, flips it in and the sons, you know, start celebrating and you look and Portland, if you watch the clip back, Portland is, it thinks the game's over. They think, think the Suns didn't win because it hits the backboard. It no. seemed like Westfall was the only guy in the entire arena mm -hmm. that knew what that rule was and that could draw that up to, to fit his players uh, and the situation perfectly. I, I love it. I remember that. And um, that's him. That's being the smartest guy in the room and being <laughs> able to slow clock down in his head, you know, slow time down and, and, and draw it up. And then they execute it and everybody's going, but that's quintessential Paul Westfall. It's also, you know, magical for that season. Those moments happen. I think the beauty is you recognized it at that time. This is one of those moments. And you don't get that with every team every season. But you sure got a lot of them that year with him, that's for sure. But can you imagine him drawing that play up? I mean, I, I think of playing basketball in the driveway and every game coming down to the last shot and a foul being called and you had to throw the ball off the rim. To, you know, all these weird things. Paul did that for – at the highest level, not in driveway. 
that's what again there's that word cool again that's going to come out of my mind and it worked that's yeah. the craziest part like yeah. everybody uh, yeah everybody has wild ideas but he actually found the way to execute them yeah. as well so yeah. Yeah. so the, probably the 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 biggest thing that people will remember outside of the finals from that year is the suns go into the final stretch of the season they decide to basically sit sit their stars because they know they they've got the number 1 seed locked up they do a little bit of a a quote unquote training camp right before the uh, mm-hmm. the series with the lakers and they wind up falling down 2 2-0 to the 8th eighth, eighth seed lakers and what seems like a magical run all of a sudden seems like it could wind up being one of the greatest disappointments in franchise history and while many would panic many would have looked at the situation and uh and just not known what to do paul westfall after losing uh, a heartbreaking game against the lakers in game two sits at the podium and as calm as i've ever heard guarantees that they're going to win the next the next three games and win the series and it's just crazy to me that that he went in that calmly to do that not only did he say that but if i if my memory is right espo he said what day the games were on remember that yep and then he and then he threw the tag at the end and we're all going to talk about what great series it was which was also quintessential little sarcastic Paul Westfall, but he was in, intent on that. And I love what he did. He disarmed the pressure on his team, put it right on his back. That's what a Hall of Famer does, right? That's, you're in the ring of honor when you're able to do that and pull it off. But you mentioned the camp, uh, the little mini training camp. It was in Prescott. And I'll never forget driving up there. And when I pulled down into Prescott near Whiskey Row, I could just see there were Suns fans as far as the eye could see. So this little respite away from the, the hoopla, it didn't work. <laughs> there, were more, more, there were Suns fans everywhere in Prescott. I'll never forget that. But if I could jump ahead, I we were in L.A. I think it was prior to the first game of the Lakers. We were staying at the Ritz-Carlton Marina del Rey, uh, and, um, which, by the way, I think is where they shot the opening scene to Gilligan's Island in the boat. But um, – we had uh, Jerry Colangelo had his Talk to the Sun show with Jude, and we were in a boardroom in the hotel, and uh, ABC News was on at the top of the hour, and Jerry and Jude were sitting there, and I was in that room, and the conversation that took place before the show started while ABC News and local news and traffic and weather together was uh, enlightening. Jerry was just not happy. He was not happy with the way that the regular season ended and, and the things that you just talked about. and um, Paul Westfall is in his in his sights, but um, he he toned it down, went on the air, and spoke from his heart as he always did. And I, that's what I, one of the things I loved about Jerry on the air and Paul. Um, they gave you exactly what they were truly thinking, and there was such a refreshing attitude about that. But uh, there are little flash uh, flash points in my head of that whole ninety two ninety three season that will stay with me forever, and one of them is Jerry talking his way through what had happened in games one and two of that series and, and Paul's promise. So someday Jews got to write a book about that. conversation. <laughs> well, I, you could tell that, that in some <laughs> ways, what Westfall knew, what, it, what the remaining three games in that, that series meant. Uh, yeah. And, and 
I, I'm guessing that's part of what motivated him to go in there as well after that loss and make that that guarantee. One of my favorite parts of that guarantee that usually gets cut off uh, is after the quote you said that oh this this is everybody will say what a great series this is and then he takes a beat and he says and it has been for the Lakers. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's lost in history. That should that should be. You got to let that thing run out, man. I don't. I don't want to live in seventeen-second soundbite world anymore. That is too good to edit. Thank you for bringing that back. You just resuscitated that. That's awesome. <laughs> so then, so they make this monumental comeback. They then in in that semifinal, you have the Barkley shot over Robinson mm-hmm. in Game Six to win. They have the this tremendous battle in seven games uh, against the the Sonics and and they come out victorious and Paul Westfall now becomes the guy who not only led the team on the court in in 75 76 to the finals but becomes only the second coach to lead the team to the finals uh in 92 93 the excitement at that point has to be off the charts. I mean, I remember it from a fan perspective, but even media-wise and within the organization uh, at that point, it, it's got to be just unbelievable what everybody's going through. But, like but Westfall is the only guy in that room that understands what that next uh, that next step is really going to be. We're not talking about a team with championship experience. He's the, the guy who's gone in there before. Uh, he's got to play the calming force, right? Yeah, and I think um, I talked to Jude about this this morning about those losses in games one and two. Those were those were tough for Paul, I think. And Phil Jackson is a master, and he had a lot of things to to throw at the Suns. And then obviously they they found their way back. But I think I, I I'm going to give you a, a little something to look for. This is so weird, but whenever I go to work, if I go downtown, when we used to be able to go to our offices or go to Chase Field for a Dimebacks game, I get off on the freeway. I think it's seventh. Instead of making a left and going towards the arena or the stadium, if you go right and and head, I guess that would be north, um, there is still a vestige of Suns fandom on the side of the road from 92, 93. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a paint job on the curb or a wall in front of an office building, and it's still orange. And I was telling somebody the other day about this that <laughs> – it, that that was everywhere, windows of buildings, that kind of paint, cars. I mean, this is before you could get a thousand different T-shirts. There were only a few shirts you could get, but everybody had them. Uh, I still have my. This is pristine, by the way, from Todd's Garage, a '93 Finals hat that has never been worn. I'm afraid to wear it. I mean, these were this was like currency. So there was nothing like it, nothing, and um, I, I just. If I'm the Forrest Gump of that, I'm really I'm damn happy because I, I every time I, I go by that that piece of uh, whatever it is the infrastructure that was painted, I just laugh. I'm like it's still there. Maybe they've touched it up over the years, but I know when they put it down, and it just reminds me of what can happen when a team grabs a community. And Paul got that clearly, um, and he let his stars be stars, and he let them be the show. And I, I will say this about Paul Westfall. He didn't suffer fools in the media. Um, he didn't he didn't engage in the shtick that you saw, especially back then with the you know the local TV anchors and everybody wants to be their buddy. Like Cotton made a career out of that. And it was so much fun. 
Paul was not that guy. He answered every question. He wasn't, wasn't like he wasn't cordial. Um, he gave you a little bit of his soul with each answer, but he wasn't there to screw around. He was there to win games and win a championship. And I always loved that about him. And, you know, he, we had a special rapport with him because he was on his show, a radio show once a week. And Jude and Paul talking basketball was like a meeting of the basketball minds. I love that. But um, Paul didn't, he didn't want to play that game. In fact, if you want, I can, I can get you to the moment that I'll never forget in Chicago with Paul. Because uh, as you may know, the Chicago media can be a rough crowd. And there's a bit of an arrogance about them, especially about their bulls in the early 90s. And Paul literally, he, he laughed in the face of it. There was, I mean, there was a lot of antagonizing going on. And there's kind of this, you know, the whole Chicago thing with the Suns. They were disrespecting the Suns. And then the triple overtime game happened. And then the whole NBA world erupted. This is impossible. How can the Suns beat the Bulls? You're, do you remember any of that? Oh, yeah. The uh, And I believe there was even rumors of conspiracy that the fix was in, which yeah. which was every, every game in the 90s. There always seemed to be a rumor about that. But since this was the biggest game on the biggest stage, it, it took on a life of its own back then. It did. So I, I have another uh, artifact from Todd's Garage, Espo. This is my blockbuster video card that i got from their store on 49 east chicago avenue i had to get this because i had to rent the movie jfk and jude and i sat down with doug cannon who was back home at ktar and we did a whole feature on the conspiracy theory and we spliced in the movie uh clips from jfk but what i wanted to play for you is my second favorite radio bit and we started our show the day after the triple overtime game prime time, drive time, the 620 sports line with this six or seven minute monstrosity of a feature comparing the, the conspiracy of JFK and the Oliver Stone movie to that conspiracy that the, uh, the fans and the media, especially the media in Chicago, allege. And if I could, it starts with, this was, this was one of my favorite things that we ever did. We went up to Steve Rosenblum, who was the, the uh, I think he still is, one of their main columnists for the Chicago Tribune. He's the one who blew the story up, conspiracy. And I stood right next to him. I said, would you read your column? He looked at me. I said, no, I, I need you to read it. I don't want anyone to have to paraphrase this. So he read a bulk of the column for us, for our show. And then what you're about to hear is the Hall of Famer, Paul Westfall, literally laughing in the face of the, the allegation that the fix was in. And I love how he handled it. And he did it professionally without you know tearing anybody to pieces. But basically it was... That's BS. I think he called it Big Whoop or something, but this is a clip of it. If I were a cynic, I'd wonder about Game 3 of the NBA Finals, that triple overtime affair one Sunday by the Phoenix Suns, 129-121. See, if I were a cynic, I'd wonder how the Bulls went to the free throw line only once in the first half, despite taking 24 shots in the paint, while the Suns were awarded 13 free throws, despite taking two fewer shots in the paint. And if I were a cynic... I'd wonder how the Bulls ended up with just nine free throws in a triple overtime game when they took 65 shots in the paint, while the Suns got 31 free throws when they took 17 fewer shots from the same places. If I were a cynic, I'd wonder how Michael Jordan went to the free throw line just six times in a game in which he took 43 shots and was double and triple team for most of the last 20 minutes. Good thing I'm not a cynic. Good thing. 
where there's power and money, there's, there's corruption. There's corruption. Right. Power corrupts. And we are in and Chicago, right, Steve? Of course we are. I never had a good conspiracy. I didn't want it. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have. And it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. It's the stupidest thing I ever heard about. No, I can't. Because I can, you, you can show one or two clips. Oh, the bull got fouled. The bull got fouled on that play. Well, I can put together a film clip that could show some unbelievable plays where I think the Suns got fouled. I mean, if you want to make a case that, say, the referees don't make every correct call throughout an NBA game, well, big flash. I mean, if you think those guys are good enough to call every play exactly right, you haven't been watching the NBA. And most of the people that have this conspiracy theory haven't been watching the NBA. Um, I mean, to me, it, it's so ludicrous. And I, we're down two to one. If anybody should be driving about the rest, it should be me. I mean... It's so ridiculous that, that uh, all you can do is laugh. I mean, I'm getting a little worked up about it, but basically, I can't believe how stupid people are to say that. Well, it's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game, prevents them from asking the most important question, why? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? This is, it's hilarious to me that, uh, that you guys, and I said this to you when we were talking about this before, but how you guys took radio back then and created it into theater of the mind and oh. really, really embraced it. And, and Paul in both of these, it, ha it plays such a role in, oh. in really getting you to to think about it and enjoy it. I didn't realize that until he passed when I thought about what I had laying around here in the garage. And I went, oh, my God, two of my all-time favorite moments that we sort of created and did this goofy radio theater. He's the centerpiece. <laughs> and it seems now, in hindsight, fitting. And I'm really glad about that. Well, you you bring up the garage, and first of all, I have no clue how. Uh, I've always wondered this. Can you fit a car in your garage? Because it sounds like it's wall to wall stuff. I actually have a two car garage that has one car in it now, and I could fit another one. Yes. Wow. It, you remember a lot of the theater of the mind, and and just having just the right stuff to give the illusion of a lot of stuff. There is no giant ball of string, contrary to what Bob Brenly says. It, it's actually kind of quiet in here. But yes. Yeah, I, I okay. just I just picture the ga garage with with shelves like stacks like a library and it's just no, meticulously no, no. Uh, kept into it. But no, no, I just know where everything is. Like I can find things within usually within minutes. Well, I I want to know when when you were thinking about this, other than these great uh, clips that you brought, were there other items involving Paul Westfall that you went? You know what? Yeah. I got this in the garage. I got to show you these first of all. This is kind of funny, but this is the the Tops 1976 card, and these are the they did the throwback to the earlier giant car. I don't know why they did these cutouts. These giant. <laughs> this is a normal size card in comparison. This is Paul's rookie card, so you can see. And this is his rookie card with the the Boston Celtics. And I know that there's a story as to why he's wearing number 27. 
I and I and I it, it is lost. Maybe someone can can help you and and tweet to you or myself. I'd love to know why he's wearing twenty seven. I think that was Casey Jones at one point and Kevin Stakem later. But and then I want to show you this card too, just because we brought him up. This is one of my favorite cards. Take a look at that beauty. The shot that that cameraman got of Dick Van Arsdale with the ball about That's a half amazing. inch off the ground. But I have to tell you a real quick story about these two cards. So I, I obviously I grew up in upstate New York, and I was a Knicks fan. And um, Paul was one of my favorite Knicks. And I brought some of my stuff with me when I came to Arizona, and I brought my my early basketball cards. And then suddenly I'm covering the Suns, and I'd stopped getting things signed. I didn't. I just that wasn't. My, you know, I have a press pass on now, but I loved Paul Westfall. And um, I was covering a game, and he was assistant coach, and it was like a Sunday afternoon, and I was walking out of the Coliseum, and he was sort of walking to the room to see his family. And um, I had these with me. I'd had them with me the whole year. And I'm like, oh, man. And I know we did a story about the number 27. I thought, you know, I do have my blue pen. I'm here. There's nobody else here. I'll cross the line. I'll never do it again. And he walked by, and I said, Coach, do you mind? I, I, and he said, no. <laughs> and I went, I, I just was like, oh, I'm sorry, man. And he just kept walking. And I believe his wife was standing with um, two people that I love dearly, Brock, Bronkhorst's dad, Buck. Brock, a former Arizona Wildcat point guard, a high school basketball star here, his, his dad, I believe it was an NBA ref and close friends with Paul and his wife, Nancy, and they saw it. And I think, and they knew me. I was, I was part of that Wildcat basketball family. We would go to the Brunk course for dinner. Every time we came up and played ASU, they're some of my closest, dearest friends back then, back in the day. And I think it was Brock's mom who saw that and said, you go sign those cards for him. He's a good man. And Paul came back and signed him. But I felt about that big. And every time I see these, I cringe and go, oh, man. And now I look at him with um, the utmost respect for a life well lived. And I know what he went through. I've, I've, I know a couple of people that have had the exact same uh, cancer, and it is brutal. And it is uh, not a path I would ever in my wildest dreams want to try and navigate but i thought he he did that with class and grace and dignity and then and um that doesn't surprise me for the man that paul westfall was and i'm really really proud to be able to bore you to tears with some of these stories but i hope you enjoyed it because um he was really the central figure to so much that 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 i consider to be phoenix suns basketball not not boring in the least. You were the, like I said at the open, the guy I knew I wanted to talk to. And honestly, you're you're right. I would not wish uh, what Paul had to go through no. uh, to anybody, but he he handled it the way he lived his life, like you said, with class and, and dignity. And yep. I wouldn't have expected anything less. And I... I he has had an immense impact on Suns fans of multiple generations, but that wasn't the most important impact either. He was uh, an amazing family man from everything I've uh, I've heard and, and I experienced and, and just a good person in general. And there's probably not enough of those that, that we encounter in sports. And that's probably why he holds such a special part, uh, not only for you and I, but for, uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of others uh, that, that he touched in his time with the, with the sons. So. I totally agree with that. I think he did a, a fabulous service by honoring him and however you're doing it, I suppose. So thanks for letting me roll with that.
He is Todd Walsh. You can catch his podcast, Todd's Garage, as part of the Fox Sports Arizona podcast network that we here at the Sun Solar Panel are a part of as well. And you can always catch Todd on Coyotes broadcasts and Dime Bass broadcasts on Fox Sports Arizona. Todd, thank you for taking uh, the time out of your hectic schedule. Let's get ready for hockey to, to talk a little Suns basketball. I couldn't wait to do it. Thanks, man. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is the Sun Solar Panel, and we'll talk to you next time.